When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 163, Stalin, Family Man. Last time, Jugashvili had been readmitted to the local Socialist Party, but was then banished to the backwater area of Chiatura in western Georgia. What should have been Stalin's time out so he could learn his place, instead became the central area that represented the workers' plight and the owners' cruel exploitation. The miners undertook the back-breaking work of bringing out the vital manganese for the making of steel. The owners enjoyed huge profits. However, just before Koba got there, the workers decided they had had enough. Work was stopped. Resistance was offered. The czarist police were called in, and the tension mounted. It was then that Koba came in and found himself with the opportunity of a lifetime. Here was a battle. Here were fists and weapons being used, instead of proclamations or declarations. The power-hungry, insensitive young Stalin was in his element. But as successful as he was with helping organize the locals, he found out that there were battles both external and internal. The resisting workers voted, instead of Stalin as their leader, one No Ramashvili, a Menshevik from another group of the Workers' Party, which had their own struggles against the Bolsheviks, of which Stalin belonged to. For this other battle, Stalin needed help. He needed guidance. But his mentor, Lado, was now dead. So instead, Stalin wrote to the head of the Bolshevik faction, Vladimir Lenin. Lenin was all too familiar with the arrogance of the Mensheviks. He had been there and had, in fact, been a part of the split that led to the two factions. Just two years earlier, in July of 1903, in London, nine members of the burgeoning party met at the Second Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party. During their discussions, in trying to form a charter and program, Lenin and another member, Martov, had a disagreement that turned hostile very quickly. The issue was fundamental to the party's future, but the argument was also personal. On the surface, the debate was about how many people should be on the editorial board of the periodical Iskra. Lenin wanted three, Martov six. But the real issue was Russia's future. Both men hated capitalism and what it did to those without means. But it was a reality. One could not simply wish it away. But as Marxism said, that the revolution could only come about with a bourgeoisie revolution, that meant that Russia had to have capitalism, and not just in a small way. The majority of the Russian people needed to experience it, to then become frustrated with it, so they could then move on. But with Tsar Nicholas II well entrenched in not allowing any political changes, 
even those that would have benefited him. How was any of this supposed to happen? And hence, here is where the two men and their supporters disagreed. Lenin wanted the country and the revolution run by a small professional group of thinkers like himself. The workers could provide the numbers and mob solutions when needed, but those that knew history and could be just as ruthless as the Tsar's police needed to run the show. As for Martov, he admitted to not having an answer to this most complex problem, but he saw it as his business to simply battle with communism and the Tsar. The rest would take care of itself, and certainly the people should be involved in the entire process. How this general thrust of Martov's was to succeed, especially in a backward Russia, agitated Lenin, and caused him to take an even more radical stance. This kind of reaction would become his modus operandi. And yet, Lenin's views were not by any means popular, not even with his own kind. A vote was cast about the two approaches, and though there were 47 semi-intellectuals and only four actual workers present, Lenin's views lost by a vote of 23 to 28. But because this Congress was deciding such a major issue, the party's approach to overthrowing the Tsar, Lenin refused to back down. Right there and then, he announced the start of his faction, to be called the Bolsheviks, or Majoritarians. He arrogantly took this name because they won a second vote on a much less important question. Martov shot back that his faction, which actually won the main vote, would be called the Mensheviks, or Minoritarians. Thus, a line was drawn, and the two sides established. The only ones happy with this outcome were the officers of the Okranka that worked for the Tsar. Now their enemies were fighting each other, as well as them. And the fighting quickly got personal, as Lenin and Martov had been friends up to this point. As word got out amongst the other Social Democrats, many turned away from Lenin, but not Stalin. He agreed with the man. The people were not disciplined and educated to a degree necessary for long-term planning and execution. If left to their own, many, if not most, would simply give up after achieving a few working conditions, mostly because the Tsar had been so hard on them for so long. No, they needed to be led and needed to be told what they wanted. Stalin would have normally participated in the 1903 Congress, though whether his presence would have changed anything is doubtful, but at the time, he was in a czarist prison. Lenin, seeing that his path was even more challenging now, worked hard to recruit those of the Caucasus branch of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party. But working against him, starting in early 1905, was no Jordania, who had just returned from Europe and was a devout Menshevik. Stalin and Jordania had already clashed in 1901 over who should lead the people and their revolution. So, for Stalin, he was further pushed into a role of loyalty to Lenin by Jordania's speeches against the Bolsheviks and his attempts to bring Koba to the other side. But to say that he was Lenin's protege, or that Stalin now had a new mentor, would be going too far. The two men agreed on how the future of the party should play out, but it was not like they had each other's back 
taking on the Mensheviks together. That would come later. The two men did finally meet in December of 1905 at the Third Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party in Russian-ruled Finland. Stalin was one of three delegates of the Bolshevik faction of the Caucasus, which shows how much his time in organizing the resistance at Chiatura had paid off for him, whereas Lenin was just returning from a Swiss exile to Russia. Lenin was 35, Stalin a decade younger. And yet Stalin had not been impressed with Lenin. Few were on first inspection. During the meeting, Lenin's proposals were shot down, and the man, amazingly, backed away from the confrontation. Disgusted, Stalin would write of this meeting, I expected to see the mountain eagle of our party, a great man, not only politically, but physically, for I had formed for myself a picture of Lenin as a giant, as a stately representative figure of a man. What was my disappointment when I saw the most ordinary individual, below average height, distinguished from other mortals by literally nothing. However, what was not apparent immediately upon looking at the older man was his force of will. In time, it would ground down many at this meeting and bring the young firebrand, Stalin, into the role of protege. And there was time. Not much, but some as Nicholas II would allow the ghosts of the czars before him to hinder any progress that could have benefited the state and the lives of his family. As has been mentioned, after the signing of the Russo-Japanese Peace Treaty, Stalin was still in Chiatura, helping the Red Hundreds, when the people of St. Petersburg started a general strike. Within days, more than one million people throughout Russia joined in. The telegraph lines were silent, as was the rail line. The troops in the Far East could not be brought home. Equally important, though, the Tsarist police would always find ways to be moved to any trouble spots. So Lev Trotsky, a Menshevik, used the army's immobility to lead a St. Petersburg Soviet, or council. Wouldn't last very long, but it showed in what direction the people desired things to go. This was October of 1905, and Nicholas's first reaction was to call out anyone who could hear his hail and take the fight to the troublemakers. Right away, members of Nicholas's extended family suggested he was the Tsar after all that it was now time for Russia to have some form of a parliament. Besides the Ottoman Empire, Russia was almost the only country in Europe not to have a representative body. Nicholas turned to Sergei Vita, who had recently returned from the United States, for advice. The nobleman was blunt in his response. Either allow some civil liberties and a government, or have someone mow down all those who resisted. And, as this was not going to happen... His government would have been nothing more than an assembly line of executioners. Nicholas, on October 17, 1905, signed the manifesto on the improvement of state order. This promised some civil liberties and a bicameral legislature, a lower house, or state duma, that would be the people's representatives, and it would have the right to issue laws. To balance out the duma, 
was the State Council, a mostly ceremonial advisory body of the well-to-do. And for the first time, though this had been attempted in times past, there would also be a Prime Minister. The idea was for the Prime Minister to have a strong legislative body to work with, to keep the various ministries in line. But it was the Prime Minister that would have the ability to control contact between the ministries and the Tsar. This could all work out well if the Tsar was in line with the Prime Minister's thinking, or vice versa. And as the forming Russian government was more like Prussia's than Britain's, Tsar Nicholas retained the right to appoint or dismiss ministers at his whim. He could also veto legislation or sack the Duma at any time, thus calling for the need for new elections. And who was to have the honor, precarious as it was, to be Russia's first prime minister? Sergei Vita himself. Yet right off the bat, Vita had most of those around him, hoping he would fail, or rather were not actively supporting him, for various reasons. The establishment did not want any changes. Others did not like Vita personally, and thus wanted him to fail. Still others wanted to see a constitution, but so they could alter it to suit them. The people striking wanted their own land, and wanted government help in the form of food. Last of all, Nicholas II did not support his new man, as he found the official too uppity, i.e. he did not grovel enough in the Tsar's presence. Yet Vita was getting things done when he was allowed to collaborate with anyone. The main problem was that there was no Duma in session. Not yet. It was on the way, just like the Constitution, being written by someone else, but edited by Vita. Problem was, no one was being patient. But there was a hero of sorts on the way. One Poiter Dornavo, former sailor, former director of police, former deputy interior minister, currently acting interior minister, put there by Vita. As none of the supposed progress was happening fast enough, the people became even more violent. Then, in mid-October 1905, the Baltic sailors mutinied. But before Vita could organize any kind of response, Dornovo rounded up hundreds of the troublemakers and had many of them killed, only to find a shocked Vita timidly supporting him. Then Dornovo got even harsher with his actions. Vita was no longer supportive, but Nicholas II was. And the harsh actions did work, fear always does, in the short run. The government, in its fluctuating state, started moving, as did goods and services, once again. But Dornovo kept up the pressure by continuing to arrest anyone who gave offense. Between October 1905, when the Constitution was promised, and when it was delivered, some six months later, Dornovo had put behind bars between 50,000 and 70,000 people. This, of course, brought about more strikes, the people's only civilized weapon, which had little effect against the Tsar's new bulldog. When the postal workers of St. Petersburg struck, Dornovo had many of them arrested, and replacement workers were brought in. When the Petersburg Soviet, with Trotsky at its head, 
told their people to remove what money they had from the state banks. Durnovo had many of them arrested before they got their money out. Then strikes in Moscow, the ancient capital, started up. But Dornovo was ready for them, too. Sending out his people, some 400 were killed and over 2,000 seriously wounded. The state had raised the stakes. If the people wanted some level of freedom from the Tsar, they had to be prepared to bleed for it. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The same scenario played out in Kiev. From there, Dornovo spread out with his officially sanctioned violence. Sanctioned by the Tsar, not Vita, who Dornovo had not bothered talking to since early 1906. Soon, the reinvigorated Russian officials were taking back control in Chiatura, which was firmly back in the owner's hands by the end of 1906, which ended Stalin's time in the sun, not to mention his fight with the Mensheviks, as they were pushed out as well. By the end of 1907, Nicholas firmly had his empire back. For now. So, Nicholas was happy with the bloodletting, as it had been the blood of traitors, as he saw it, that had been let. Writing to his mother, the Tsar thought Durnovo's handiwork had been superb. Yet the Russian leader was not a monster. He saw his world, literally his world, slipping. And now he had a very specific reason for seeing the last two years in this light. After fathering four girls, his wife, the Tsaritsa, Alexandra, finally gave birth to a son and heir, Alexei. The Tsar was fighting for his son and his son's future. And yet, for all of the killings and possible threats to Nicholas, he had not done away with the October Manifesto creating, or rather, allowing the creation of the Duma. So, on April 27, 1906, that body met in the Winter Palace. And standing before them, how he must have hated this, was the Tsar to give the opening address to the Russian and foreign dignitaries. But brevity is not always the soul of wit. The Tsar managed from his raised dais in St. George's Hall, 
and unenthusiastic address of just 200 words, which was met by absolute silence. The men gathered before him, nobles and those elected by the common folk, were not sure how to start. This was, after all, a new Russia, a constitutional autocracy. Yet the word constitutional was forbade by the Tsar. So the Duma was launched, that is, up to the point where Prime Minister Sergei Vita gave his Tsar his resignation. Though he had been instrumental in getting everyone to this point, it had sucked away his life force. Now broken mentally and physically, the man walked away from his creation. This self-termination would not have bothered Nicholas so much, had it not also meant that Dernovo, who was with the new government, had to turn in his resignation as well. That was the way the Russian world worked now. Replacing both men was Pyotr Stalipin, the governor of Sarotov province. He was a naturally gifted speaker, well-polished, who actually tried to explain things to the Tsar's subjects before continuing Dernovo's recent harsh policies. If Stolypin's smooth words did not bring about the desired results, the man had no problem raising his fists, actually leading the troops into the moody crowds. This type of direct application of power, combined with his real, or not, humility at meeting Nicholas II, was enough to be offered the top job. But just producing more steel and focusing on the steps of mass production, everyone's objective, was something almost any politician could do, holding, as it were, the reins of state. Stolypin was taking the long view, which took a certain amount of courage considering the times. Beyond meeting the widely understood objectives of any leader, he also chose to focus on bringing the balance of the Russian people into the political world, to educate them and involve them in the process of what was their government now. Simply, there was to be mass politics along with mass production. Yet this was an uphill struggle. The people were used to being told what to do. They might get angry about it, but they had guidance. Now they were about to be a part of the process, a part of the selection process that would choose their local leaders. Wanting something is one thing. Getting it and learning to live with it is quite another. But it would be Stolypin's goals of mass political assimilation that would upset the conservatives on the right and cause unease of those among the left. Yet both sides feared Stolypin for now. Not because so much of what he had done, but what Dernovo had done. Fear was still in the air, and Stolypin planned on using that fear to move forward his goals as fast as he could, while the fear lasted. So, the right opposed the new prime minister, mostly in speech. But it was the left that was truly now bereft and confused. If the Russian government actually sought the people's input, what did that mean for them? Would these professional revolutionaries, who couldn't do much else besides drink, write, and debate, even be needed anymore? But Koba was not a man who had a problem finding an enemy. 
Stolypin was still the enemy, if for no other reason, that the Russian government was still not a Marxist one. So on he would get with his work, while his supposedly intellectual superiors pondered over this slightly more left-leaning government, which was practically the same thing as worrying about how many angels could fit on the head of a pen. Whereas Stolypin had no time for such thoughts. Russia had the lowest producing yield of grain in Europe, lower than even Serbia, yet it was enough to feed themselves, Germany, and Britain. Something had to be done about the peasants, but also for the peasants. Russia wasn't going anywhere unless the vast majority of its people, those very peasants, led the way with their productivity. But Stolypin's main problem was everyone but himself. The right had no intention of working with the left, and vice versa. The Marxists had stayed out of the first Duma, but changed their tune when they realized their standoffishness wasn't getting them anywhere. And they got their chance to participate when Nicholas, not being able to tolerate the legislative body any further, had it disbanded after only 73 days. When voting came for the second Duma, the Social Democrats put forward candidates, or supported others, and there were enough votes by the downtrodden to get their people in. Of course, the Okranka was watching everyone, but they, just like everyone else, had no idea of what was going to happen next. There's no steering a ship at night with nothing to navigate by. The Second Duma started in 1907, but got even less done and lasted less than 90 days. This was getting Stolypin nowhere, and he saw the problem more clearly than most. It was the Russian people. They weren't entrepreneurs. They didn't think like that. They did what they were told and strove to stay on the right side of the Tsar and the Church. But Stolypin needed them fired up. He needed them to seek a better life for themselves, which would help Russia. But hampering his effort was the rate and degree that Tsarist officials were dying, actually being killed, by the left and the right. It was a terror of a different sort, but the net result was that Russia was not moving forward. Stolypin knew firsthand, as a governor, that the people were paid pittance worked to exhaustion, and had nothing to show for it at the end of the day. The result being Russia was suspended in a form of unsplendid isolation, as was Nicholas. The difference was he wanted it that way. The key for now, right now, was agriculture. And strangely, the right and the left wanted this aspect of rural life improved as well, as everyone would benefit but the two sides refused to work with each other. So the Prime Minister had the wheels spinning frantically, but little was getting accomplished. Stolypin envisioned the day when some of the peasants, enough of them, would rise to a higher socio-economic level and develop a powerful group of land-owning farmers. They would become, if we may use the phrase, a solid middle class that would create jobs and pay taxes. But again, the Prime Minister was fighting everyone outside of his office door. Yet if he could achieve this, then the country would have more sophisticated workers and the funds to move on to the next phase, 
The building of more roads, canals, dams, and alter Russia from being a group of isolated locations into a real country that could compete with those to its west and east. The Prime Minister also sought to create communes where several farming sectors were brought together and worked by the locals in an organized way. And yet this was fought by the elites as they saw the potential but would not directly benefit from it. Stolypin's only real changes were when the Duma was not in session, which allowed him to use Nicholas's power to issue decrees or to ram through laws, or at least rulings, which caused more tempers to flare from the rich and poor alike. But if the Marxists were somewhat cheered by the Prime Minister's endeavors, they soon were not as a frustrated Stolypin used his influence in 1907 to rid the Duma of many liberals and socialists in trying to wring out of the parliament a productive body. It seemed to the Marxists as if this politician was no better for the people than those who had come before him. As for the Marxists and other opposition groups, they benefited from the chaos of these years, but not much. They could not politically penetrate into the Ukraine, but that was mostly their fault, as for whatever reason, they did not create enough pamphlets or papers in the Ukrainian language. Strangely, the one who seems to have benefited the most from all this chaos was Nicholas, as the uncertain and violent times frightened the people, who reverted to form and turned to their leader, chosen by God to lead them out of this current crisis. Under the guise of the newly formed Union of the Russian People's Party, they took in the very lost souls sought by the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks. Their motto was, For Tsar, Faith, and Fatherland. And it worked brilliantly. The problem for Stalin and his kind was that the Union was right, not left-leaning. But the people didn't care. They just wanted to be led. But even Nicholas was not happy, as the Union had not been created by his people. It was, to a degree, a grassroots movement. Didn't matter. When the people gathered in the tens of thousands to chant for Tsar, Faith, and Fatherland, all the Tsar could see was troublemakers. His thinking was, this was still an autocracy. It didn't need the people's help, just their submission. So, all this begs the question, what were the Marxists like Stalin doing during this time of major change, upheaval, and assassinations? Like everyone else, they were trying to survive, and that meant closing ranks, regardless of their philosophical differences. Just two weeks before the First Duma met, the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party held their fourth Congress in mid-April 1906 in Stockholm. Attending were the Russian Marxists, 62 Mensheviks and 46 Bolsheviks, several Polish and Latvian social democrats, and the Jewish Boone. Koba, the future Stalin, came this time, and should have stood out, as he was the only Caucasus Bolshevik attending. But it appears he had again chosen to tread that fine line of standing out and bringing trouble upon his own head.
speaking out against Lenin's idea of a complete land nationalization, as well as a Menshevik alternative to this, the young man who would one day gather the farmland into huge collectives said the land should go directly to the people. If this was so, the people would learn to work together, countrywide. And, as this was a plank from another further left-leaning group, it would take away their main platform. Again, battles within battles. But the young man, he was 27 at the time, wasn't attacking the Bolshevik leader. He was merely attempting to stand out, to be seen as his own man, and possibly a future leader, as surely this revolution would continue for years. But the Congress brought no agreement in regards to what they should do with the land if and when they came to power. But they most certainly agreed on their own survival. As long as someone like Dernovo was in power, and the killings and jailings and deportations of tens of thousands continued, they had to have a way of fighting back. So the various groups agreed that what they needed was military squads to combat the royal police and the special agents of the Okranka. It was simply a matter of fighting fire with fire. They also agreed that it was time to focus on gathering weapons and money, as both were the keys to a successful war. But where was this money going to come from? The attendees were used to being hounded and staying just one step ahead of their pursuers. No one had time for fundraising or to get a job. As usual, when dealing with people in dire situations, they chose the surest and quickest routes, regardless of morals. They would steal what was needed. The first step was to set up connections with the various criminal organizations and either partner with them or learn from them to then pursue their own objectives and in doing so, turned this political movement that knew a certain amount of violence was required to a state within a state that, at its basis, was now a political terror group. It was then that Stolipin came to power and began his reign of terror in the name of safeguarding the status quo. Lenin referred to the man as Russia's hangman-in-chief, and it was this type of activity of the Prime Ministers that caused many at the Fourth People's Social Democratic Party Congress to not go back to Russia. But Stalin would not be one of them. Whether it was his youth or his belief in the cause, he would go back and pick up where he left off, fighting the Tsarists as well as the Mensheviks. Returning to Tiflis in the spring of 1906, Jugashvili put out a pamphlet that attacked the First Duma. His main theme was to the point. Either they are with us or against us. And the young man's entourage, if you will, was growing as his energy and passion drew more people to him. It also won him a wife, or rather won him the passions of one Ketivan Keto Zvanitsa age 26. Between his fiery speeches, writings, and, it must be said, singing voice, Kato was besotted, and soon the two became lovers. Within a few months, Kato told Koba that she was pregnant, 
The young revolutionary told Kato that he would marry her, but he would not give up his work. She agreed to this, which surprised some, as she was clearly his social superior. But love, or lust, has always been blind. As Stalin was still a wanted man, carrying on him false papers, they were married at 2 a.m. on July 15, 1906. There were only ten people invited to the wedding, and Soso's mother, Keke, was not one of them. But like her new mother-in-law, Kato was devout and prayed for her husband's soul as he pursued his dangerous work. As for Stalin's closest friends, they could not get over the change in the man whenever his wife was around. One wrote, I was amazed how Soso, who was so severe in his work and to his comrades, could be so tender, affectionate, and attentive to his wife. And that was one side of him, but it did not stay out for long. There was much work to be done. Soon after the wedding, Stalin disappeared into the night, back into the underground, leaving his new wife alone and pregnant. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Greetings, everyone. So, as you could probably tell over the last couple of episodes, I'm pulling back a bit, just just taking a break from the hectic pace, but soon we will be back to normal doing two to four episodes a month. Um, what I'm planning on doing is I'm not, I'm going to leave Moscow right where it's at for a moment and bring some of the other activity up to that point. So I'm going to bring North Africa and the Middle East up to that point, and also what's been going on, the, the battle um, in the seas. So if any of you could please recommend a good book to me that carries on the uh, the convoy system, the wolf packs, and all that good stuff, um, uh, what's going on in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can just send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. And you probably know what I'm looking for, something that at least gets me through um, 1941 that has a lot of detail in it. Just send me an email, let me know, and I can I can take a look at it. So I'm going to bring the North Africa, Middle East, the seas up to this to the point where I'm at with uh, Barbarossa, and then find some. And obviously, keep going with Stalin until we get to the part of Operation Barbarossa, and then decide at some point when I'm going to stop, and then pick up the Pacific and explain all the stuff that's going on with Japan, Russia, China. And then, of course, the United States and the other European powers when Japan makes the fateful decision to do what Germany has been doing and see if they can get away with it. So we will pick up our pace again uh, very soon. I'm just taking a little break from it all. Um, as for those of you who have uh, written me, I will write you back um, soon, I promise. Uh, if you've donated or if you've become a member recently or bought anything, I'll, I'll thank you on the next episode. I just wanted to get this out. So again, thank you for putting up with my just taking a little break and just pulling back. We will get really back into it because I'm already starting to get 
itchy and I'm missing, uh, to, you know, like you to see what happens next in great detail. So I will see you soon with the next episode. Take care, everyone.